I don't know if you get baffled if you read the scripture and you kind of go, I want to know what, where the person was in time and in where they were when they wrote the letters that they wrote and they were, wrote the words that they, they wrote. And the book of Philippians has been one of those that has always baffled me. And not because it talks about gospel and joy and unity and all that stuff. That's a common thread in the scriptures. But what baffles me most about the, the book of Philippians is Paul's circumstance when he's writing a book about gospel and unity and joy and all the things we have in Christ because Paul's in prison. Now, I mean, of all the times in your life to go, it's over. Just go home. Forget about it. Move along. Nothing to see here. Prison would be a good way to, a good time to start writing like that. You might want to visit your more darker side as you're writing from prison. But yet what we see in Paul's words to the Philippian church is not that. We don't see a close-up shop. We don't see a shut-it-down. We don't see everybody run. We see something totally different. And I really feel like it speaks directly to where we are at in going, how is the church to engage? How is the church to move? What is she to be marked by? And it's written by a man, penned by the Holy Spirit, about joy in most dire circumstances. You know, Philippians is one of the letters that Paul, one of the four letters that he writes from prison we know that the church in Philippi is actually his second missionary journey that he ever took. He encountered the Philippians. He goes and he speaks to them and he meets them. We know it's the first European Christian community that was established. But we know, based on his words, is that he loved these people. Now, if you don't know, the, the, the way the Bible works together is the, the, the book of Acts really tells the story of the church, the, the Holy Spirit moving the church out, empowering the church to be who she is, and we get to see how the, the Lord forms His people after Jesus' life, death, resurrection, and ascension. And in Acts, you can read it in Acts chapter 16 about Paul's encounter in Philippi, the first time he walks into this town. And it's a crazy story, and I love the pictures that the, the, that the Acts captures for us. But Paul and Silas, Silas is this guy who's always with Paul. He's his right-hand dude, and they're doing stuff together. They're sharing the gospel together. They show up in this city, and they move, and they, they go, you know what? Let's go find the religious people in this city and see if we can start a conversation with them. They end up down by a river. They meet a woman named Lydia, or the, the woman from Lydia. And so there's some different discussions about her name because we feel like she might be referenced in this letter to the Philippian church, but her name in, in, in Acts is Lydia, and she's this wealthy merchant who makes purple cloth. I mean, like, purple cloth, which is very popular, and so she kind of meets Paul, and they start talking, and he shares the gospel with her. She responds to the gospel. She's like, this is the good news I've been waiting to hear. I didn't know all this stuff. Thank you for connecting the dots. And so they meet at her house. Her house becomes a base for his work that he's doing while he's there. And one of the encounters that he has while he's in Philippi, it's crazy because my brain is just seeing how could we tell this story through film. But Paul and Silas are walking around, and you know, like normal good Christian missionaries do, they get followed by a demon-possessed girl who can, tell the for who can tell fortunes. 
You know, I mean, that's, that's normal, right? That's, I, I'm walking around getting yelled at by a demon-possessed fortune teller, right? No, I'm not. I don't, I don't experience that. I don't know if you guys have, guys have either. But, but they're walking around, and this girl is just announcing, Hey, these guys are from God, and they're here to tell you how to be saved. Hey, these guys are from God, and they're here to tell you how to be saved. And Paul and Silas are like, yeah, I know why we're here. Why were you just shut it, you know? And, and eventually they turn around and this fortune-telling, demon-possessed little girl. And, and see, I mean, again, all the horror movies and all the things we see, I'm just like, you know, what was, she, was she very calm? Was she very children of the corn? Was she very, you know, I don't know the images that, that she really portrayed. But I do know Paul and Silas are like, we're done with this. Demon, get out and go. And then you have this little girl just kind of like freed. Just free. No longer under the control of a, a demon, but free. But Paul and Silas don't calculate the fact that she has some very upset business owners who were, who were making money off of her telling people's fortune. And so they have Paul and Silas drug into the streets, stripped, beaten, and thrown in jail. So there you go, Philippi. Yay! I love being a, a representative of the gospel, freeing people, thinking that I'm doing a good thing. Now I'm naked, beaten, stripped, hit, in, in, hit with stuff, and now I'm in, in prison. And so while he's in prison in Philippi, you see the story continues. It's all in Acts 16. You can read it. Paul and Silas are praying and worshiping at midnight. And this very specific earthquake happens. Like, it's so specific, because all it does is it opens jail doors and knocks chains off of the prisoners. I, I mean, that's a pretty specific earthquake. Like, nothing else happens, but prison doors swing wide and chains fall off. And Paul and Silas are sitting in these prisons, listening and singing and praying, and the jailer who's responsible for them comes running in, assuming they've all escaped because of this very specific earthquake. <laughs> And he takes out his sword and he goes to fall on it. And Paul and Silas say like, dude, dude, what are you doing? What are you freaking out for? We're right here. What are you doing? Don't fall on your sword. And at that, the jailer falls on his face and says, how can I be saved? And they share with him the good news of trusting Christ. And if he trusts Christ, his whole family is going to come to know Christ. And this, this, this beautiful picture of the church getting its feet in Philippi is happening right here in terrible situations. And you see what happens in Acts 16, verse 33. After the jailer saved, even at that hour of the night, the jailer cared for them and washed their wounds. Then he and everyone in his household were immediately baptized. He brought them into his house and set up a meal before them. And he and his entire household rejoiced because they all believed in God. You know, what's crazy about this story is that, you know, so they go to the jailer's house. But what do they do? They go back to the jail. <laughs> After they have, God has opened the door, put the chains off. They go to eat a meal, and they're in a home, they're celebrating, they could have been like, all right, well, we're going to move on. They actually go back to the jail, and they hang out there, and the next morning, officials come and say, hey, it's time for you to let them go, and Paul and Silas are like, uh-uh, not that easy, sucker. I don't think that, they might have said sucker, I, I'd like to think that Paul would say that. But they were like, look, we're Roman citizens, and you guys are trying to sweep our imprisonment under the rug. You tell them, come and talk to us. Like, I'm sitting there going, Paul, stop running your mouth, man. You're free. Go. 
He wasn't going to let it. I'm just sitting there going, this is just, this is how I'm not like Paul. I'm like, yes, I will leave. I don't care if you're sweeping it under the rug. Thank you for sweeping it under the rug. Yes, thank you, you know. But Paul's not. And so he is actually, the officials come and they're like, oh man, we are so sorry. We didn't know. And they're like, please leave our town. <laughs> like, that's, I mean, that's what they say to him. And so they actually are asked to leave and they stop at Lydia's house and they stay there for a little bit longer, encouraging them in the gospel, challenging them, teaching them, instructing them, and then they leave. So here you have merchant of purple fabric, a jailer, and a little demon-possessed girl who is no longer demon-possessed, sitting in a home probably, looking at each other. And there's your church. There's the beginnings of this church. They weren't building buildings, but they were gathering people who said, Jesus, we believe. We believe this message. We believe that this is the message. And this is a very unlikely little group to be this, this formed, sent people with this message of new life in Christ. And so to, Paul actually describes his time in Philippi in 1 Thessalonians 2. He says this, You know how badly we had been treated in Philippi just before we came to you, talking about them, and how much we suffered there, yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great opposition. So Paul, through his own words, says, Look, when we were in Philippi, it was rough. <laughs> it was not easy. It didn't look like we thought it would. And you know what's crazy about this is, you know, I think where our natural tendency is, well, if things aren't easy and secure looking, and so I don't want to go back there, but Paul had a longing to go back. But if you think about those times in our lives that we tell stories, we love to tell the stories of, do you remember that crazy time God showed up? Do you remember how he used us in that crazy situation? Do you remember? And we start to be encouraged and we start to go, you know what? Forget being afraid. I feel like I can rip a head off a lion right now. Like those are the times and I could see why Paul would be looking at this church going, I want to get back to you. When everything in the natural is saying, don't go back, don't go back, don't go back, stay away. You remember what it was like? Paul's going, yeah, I do. I remember. I remember seeing God do amazing things. I remember being used by God. I remember seeing that little girl freed. And yes, it got us beaten and thrown in prison, but she was no longer under the tyranny of the demons and the merchants who were, who were just using her. This jailer who could have killed himself was spared and he lived. And we got to see a very specific earthquake. Doors opening, chains falling off. I mean, to be able to recount the faithfulness of God, that's what they were doing. They were talking about how faithful God has been. And you could see why he would have a deep affection for the people of Philippi. And so because there weren't Google Hangouts and Skype, you write letters. And so we know Paul writes this letter to this church about five to ten years after he's actually been with them. And the church, having been established, these people, who didn't have much, but they had the instruction and the teaching that they had been given from Paul, are forgetful. And we use the phrase around here at Highland, we're leaky people. We leak. We put things in and then stuff just kind of trickles out over time. And here we find this church in a very similar situation to us today. They were a people who were feeling the outside pressure of the culture around them. They were. They had enemy opposition saying, you need to stop what you're doing. 
And so they were feeling the, the fear of being oppressed in that way. They were a church that was marked by inner struggle and turmoil and disagreement, and we'll see that very clearly in just a second. They were a church who was, church who was afraid for Paul's position, and there was another leader in the church who had almost died twice, and so they're sitting there going, who will lead us if Paul dies and this man dies and all this stuff happens? Who is going to lead us and how are we going to move and how are we going to live and how are we going to breathe? And to top all of this off, there are always false teachers making their way into gospel-centered churches. There are always people coming to twist and to slightly throw everyone off. Well, we don't completely understand how the gospel works, so let's just behave. And then that becomes the direction they go. So you see Paul in prison and this church in peril. And so this letter on joy shows up. Such a crazy timing, such a crazy picture, but it's where we are and it's what we need to hear in these moments. Paul begins Philippians by sharing how they have a special place in his heart, that he loves them very much and he longs to be with them, just like Christ with his bride. Can you imagine longing to be with a people that desperately? That's the way we were meant to, to long to be together. Do you long to be with people as Christ longs to be with his bride? That picture right there could just stir me to go, i got to rethink some things, because that's not what I long for. I want to. I want to. And the how we get to that is by looking at Jesus. Paul mentions his current imprisonment in Philippians chapter 1, starting in verse 20. He says, For I fully expect... And hope that I will never be ashamed, but that I will continue to be bold for Christ as I have been in the past. And I trust that my life will bring honor to Christ, whether I live or die. Is that what you trust? Don't I trust? Good grief. The words here, I'm just going, we could camp forever. For to me, living means living for Christ, and dying is even better. Listen to what he says in verse 22. But if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. I mean, in America, we'd say, to live, fool. What do you mean, die? Live. So I got doctors, hospitals. That's what we worship. How long can I live? How many years can I add to my life? How many years? I want a doctor. I don't want a pastor. I want a doctor who can help me live forever. Even though we know we can't. Paul's saying, but if I live, I can do more fruitful work for Christ. So I really don't know which is better. Verse 23, I'm torn between two desires. I long to go and be with Christ, which would be far better for me. But for your sakes, it's better that I continue to live. Paul had a deep care and affection for these people, so much so that it outweighed his suicidal tendencies. Like his thought process is, I would rather be with Christ, but I know that if God's not done with me now, that I need to serve you in this way. That is a powerful picture of the gospel lived out from prison. Paul's compassion and care for the gospel mattered, and it was others-focused. So Paul writes this people, they know he cares for them. They're not looking at him like, oh man, this is some great super teacher who's writing us a letter. No, when the letter comes, they're like, it's from Paul? 
Man, I remember. Man, I remember when he stopped me from falling on my sword. Man, I remember as a little girl when I was walking around telling people's fortunes and then these two guys show up and then I'm healed. I remember when I was just kind of guessing at what God was like and then Paul clarified for me, this is Jesus. This is the good news. I remember, open that letter. I gotta know what he's gonna say. That's how they look at these letters because he had a deep affection for them. In verse 27, Philippians chapter 1, he says this, Above all, if someone you love deeply writes you a letter and and starts these phrases with the phrase above all, you pay attention. You must live as citizens of heaven. Paul goes straight for the identity. He doesn't go to behavior modification. He doesn't go to, you better straighten up and fly right. You better look busy because Jesus is coming. You better, you know, whatever, whatever we think would be the proper motivation. Paul says, above all, live as citizens of heaven. That is straight to our identity, who we are. No longer citizens of darkness, no longer citizens of the world, but citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Conducting yourselves in a manner worthy of the good news about Christ. Then whether I come and see you again or only hear about you, I will know that you are standing together with one spirit and one purpose, fighting together for the faith which is the good news. And when he's saying the good news, he's saying the life, death, resurrection of Jesus. He's not saying, I want you standing on corners, yelling about what you don't love, what you hate, what you think is terrible. I want you to tell them what the good news is and why you're a people who are kingdom citizens, who are people who are to live as if they have entered into this new kingdom because you have in your being united with Christ. And what Paul is doing here is he's doing ultimately what every parent hopes for their children. Like for my kids, if I'm instilling character in them, if I'm instilling that they are these people, that they can be these people, that they can live in this way, I don't want them to just do it when they're with me. Do you know that? I really am a little more concerned about how they treat their friends, how they treat their teachers, how they interact with their, the classmates who are, who are maybe the bully or maybe the one who's looked down on. I want to know that when I'm not around my kids, that they are carrying these things that I have tried my darndest to invest in them. Anyone who pours their life into somebody else has the same expectation. A coach doesn't just want his players acting like his players when the coach is around. The coach wants to know, will my players represent everything I have taught them, trained them, shaped them to be when I'm not around? When a teacher leaves a classroom, the teacher wants to know, these kids are not going to lose their minds. I did when I was in middle school, and I was that kid who was not what my teacher wanted me to be when she wasn't in the room. But still, anyone who pours themselves into someone else ultimately isn't just doing it so that you will put on a face when they're around. Their hope and their longing is that it will become real to you. And this new life that Paul is talking about, it's not a mask to wear, a game to play, but it is a life that is lived. Paul's expectation is no different than that of me as a parent, you as a teacher, you as a friend, you as somebody who might be investing in the lives of others. You hope that they will carry what you have poured out into their life. 
the way that they live. Paul's call is to these people who would own this new life in Christ. And Jesus' call was the very same. Jesus was saying, look, I've been with you, but there's going to come a time I'm not. And it's not put a bumper sticker on your car, Jesus is coming, look busy. It is, no, Jesus has given me everything that I need to live as he's instructed me to. I want to live as Jesus lived. Has that phrase ever come out of your mouth? I don't find myself saying that a lot because I want to chalk it all up to grace. I want to be like, oh, I got grace. I don't have to do anything. I don't have to live like Jesus lived. I got grace. That's why he died. I got his life, his death, his resurrection. That's what I got. But I really believe that we don't fully understand grace if we've never questioned, are we living as Jesus lived? In 1 John, he writes to assure the church. He says, this is how you can know is you're living as Jesus lived here on the earth. And he talks about it in the way of practice. He doesn't talk about perfection. He says, look, is your aim to walk as Jesus walked, knowing you will fail, knowing you're going to mess up because we have this thing called flesh? But is it a desire of our heart to say, I want to live as Jesus lived? And if it's not, then why aren't we asking that question? And Paul continues in Philippians chapter 1, verse 28. He says, don't be intimidated in any way by your enemies. This will be a sign to them that they are going to be destroyed, but that you are going to be saved, even by God himself. For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the privilege of suffering for him. We'll get to this in just a minute. We are in this struggle together. You have seen my struggle in the past and you know that I am still in the midst of it. Little do I think the church understands the role of standing in the midst of opposition. I don't think that we understand as the church that part of the reason we are to be unwavering in our faith in Christ and do not change our message is because Jesus did not change his message when opposed by enemies and even his own disciples. The church does not understand that when we choose to bow to culture, to winds of change, to progress, and we reject the gospel in its simple but powerful nature, we are saying that, we, that, that Jesus probably would have done the same. We are saying that, you know what, when the disciples suggested, when Peter was like, you know what, you'll never die. Don't know, Jesus, you're not going to die for us. And Jesus is like, you know what, you're right, I shouldn't. When Satan tempted Jesus in the desert, hey, why don't you turn this stuff in bread you can eat? You know what? You're right. I should. When the church refuses to be changed in her mission and vision and why she does what she does because we see our marching orders in the gospel and in the New Testament letters, we see that we are a people set apart who are to reflect this unchanging message of the gospel. When we change, we are not reflecting Christ. And that should break our heart the most. That should cause us to go, I can't do that. I can't be a part of that because Christ himself was unwavering to the mission his father gave him. 
you and I have an opportunity to reflect that when we say, you know what, I understand the culture is saying something, but Jesus' words matter most. And I know I may not get them. I know those words may frustrate me. And I know those words may be hard at times to live out. And I know those words that I know the, but, but, but to be honest, faith is believing that he is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. From Genesis to Revelation, that's what God is inviting his people to believe. Is that Jesus is who he says he is and that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. This is what we cannot waver upon. Paul also gives another reason. He gives this interesting, not one privilege, but two privileges. The first privilege, you get to belong to Christ. You get to trust Christ. And it was a privilege, and it was a promise that was made in the Old Testament that Gentiles who were not Jewish, who knew nothing about the law, they would also be included in this promise to bless the world, bless the nations through Abraham, and they were getting to see that fulfilled right there in front of them. They were not Jewish. They were not people who practiced the law. They were not people who understood all the old stories of God's faithfulness. But God was reaching to them and pursuing them. And in Christ, they were being included in this privilege to know God. To have right relationship with the one who created them. In all of their false idol worship and all of their false stuff, it was all pointing them to a place that they had this longing in them to know and have relationship with God. And they were trying to find all these different ways to do it. And Paul's like, you know what Jesus did? He made a way. And you have the privilege of now knowing that and believing that. But then he goes to this weird second privilege. And it's the one we don't want to talk about. I like the privilege of believing and trusting. But then he's like, you've also been given the privilege of suffering for Christ. Now hold up now, okay? Now if you're a visitor and you're like, this, this bunch of people are weird, man. They have to hit themselves and beat themselves and, 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 and do all this crazy stuff. Let me just, let me just halt you for a second. Because su- we, we take it a privilege to suffer for quite a bit. You do it. You're doing it now. You are suffering for something because here's the deal. We're willing to suffer for what we love. One word or two words, depending on who you're talking to. CrossFit. Go ahead and show that video. tell me that it is warped for religious people to see it as a privilege to suffer. Okay? We all do it. It's a very simple equation. You're willing to suffer for what you love. I mean, I know a lot of people that are in the CrossFit world that they do. They value physical fitness to the point of barfing all the time. Like, yeah, man, uh, the W-O-D, uh, man, uh, I barfed, threw up all over my shoes. I'm like, what? What? How? What are you? Okay, fine. Please don't tell me that it's strange for a Christ follower to see it a privilege to suffer for Christ. Look at a middle school boy who has been smitten with a middle school girl. 
Do you know what that boy is willing to suffer himself through? Changing the way he dresses, changing the way he talks, brushing his teeth, wearing deodorant. I mean, it's part of the middle school world. I mean, so you've got guys that go, bro, what's up? And he's like, but she's amazing. We suffer for the things we value. I mean, the businessman, he's suffering and sacrificing his health and his family and everything else to what? To make the dollar. This whole idea of the privilege to suffer for something, we're already doing it. We're already in the midst of it. And Paul is saying that for those of you who understand what Christ has accomplished, you go, you know what? Christ gave up his privileges. He suffered for me. And now I'm just, he purchased me back. So now I just get to live as he lived. The privilege of knowing him far outweighs the privilege of suffering for him. Do you know that? Yes, suffering is part of it, but when you and I understand what Christ suffered for us on our behalf, we're just like, you know what? To live is Christ, to die is gain. That's why Paul could say that. Because there was a value in what Christ had accomplished. Now in Philippians chapter 2, he gets straight to the point, I believe, of the inner turmoil struggle the church was walking in. And he does it through questions. And this is how he does it. Is there any encouragement from belonging to Christ? Any comfort from his love? Any fellowship together in the Spirit? Are your hearts tender and compassionate? I want you to know he's not asking these questions thinking that he's going to get a no from them. You know what he's doing? He's doing what a good parent does when their children are fighting. When I walk over to my sons and they're fighting with their sister. I'm like, do you love your sister? And they're like, yes. I'm hoping they get to the conclusion. Do you want her tiny fist marks all over your face? No. Asking the right question can spur on the right decision. And that's what Paul does in these questions. He's like, look, guys, is there, have you been encouraged from belonging to Christ?" Yes. Have you been comforted by his love? Yes. Paul is doing the work of a good parent and helping them come to the conclusion that he knows they already know. And he's moving them as a father would his children. If this, then this. Every one of these questions is not suggesting they might not have these, but because they are united with Christ, they have these. And so he continues in Philippians 2, Then make me truly happy. Again, remember, this is spoken from one that loves them deeply. By agreeing wholeheartedly with each other, loving one another, working together with one mind and purpose, don't be selfish, don't try to impress others, be humble, thinking of others as better than yourselves, don't look out only for your own interests, which would be selfishness, but take an interest in others too. Do you notice that Paul says, look, you, you do have to watch out for your own interests, because when we don't, we become doormats and pushovers and can be taken advantage of. And so Paul's like, look, you're going to take it. You're going to, you will pay attention to your own interests. But if you live there, if you live there, that is no way to live. 
but take a look for the interests of others. You know, and, and today as we talk about our sentness, last week we talked about moving from consuming to being consumed. Not just being a consumer, looking at everyone as a commodity to be bought and sold, but to really go, we are family, and that's not how family interacts. This morning, I, I, I was telling them as we were praying, I have had these thoughts wrestling around in my head and heart, and I've finally been able to put it to words. Our sentness is not a program to attend, but a posture of the heart. And what I mean by that is how we go as the church is just as important as going. Because we can go in the wrong way. We can go and be consumed with things that Jesus was not consumed with. We can be consumed with our own thinkings. And this is where I say we get guessy about how Jesus might do things. We kind of fill in the blank. We're like, you know what? I'd rather not look at Jesus or listen to him or think about what he has to say. So I'm going to fill in the gaps. I think I'm pretty smart. I can come up with things. But chances are when the flesh shows up and says, let's fill in the blanks. You're not reflecting Jesus, you're reflecting your idea of Jesus, which could be you. You could have set an idol up in your life of a man-made version of Jesus. And to be honest, you're not reflecting him, you're reflecting yourself. This is the hard part of heart examination. It goes, do I see Jesus as he says he is, or have I filled in the gaps? You know, we see that they're marked by being united. And I want you to hear me very clearly. United is not the same as uniform or same. See, the world is promoting, the secular world is promoting uniform and same. Just go home. You're supposed to think like I'm supposed to think. And if you don't, you're done. The world promotes sameness and uniformity in a way the church was never meant to. But we were meant to move in unity. And when I say unity, we were meant to walk as the people who believe, A, that Jesus is who he says he is, and B, that he's going to do what he says he's going to do. That is what we are united under. We may not look the same. We may not talk the same. We're all not wearing purple jumpsuits with silver shoes, drinking Kool-Aid, talking the same language, looking at people with blank stares. That's uniformity and sameness. Unity is coming together under the understanding that Jesus has purchased us and his word is most important. And that stirs us on in the mission. Not just unity, but humility. Arrogance has no place in the bride of Christ. We don't aim to impress the world, but we do seek the applause of God. Humility. That's how we go. Humble. And lastly, serving. Our sentness is marked by a desire to intentionally serve. We do not accidentally serve. We are intentional, we have our eyes open, we look around. This is a result of understanding one thing that Paul begins to do right here in the midst of this, hey, how how are you going to deal with each other? He goes into this praise break. Starting in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5. You read it this morning, we can read it again. You must have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. 
Though he was God, he did not think of equality with God as something to cling to. Instead, he gave up his divine privileges. He took the humble position of a slave and was born as a human being. When he appeared in human form, he humbled himself in obedience to God and died a criminal's death on a cross. Therefore, God elevated him to the place of highest honor and gave him the name above all other names, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue declare that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I feel like Paul was probably writing this letter in this moment, and he probably stood up in his chair and was like, I got to take a second. I got to take a second. I, I mean, I do. I feel like Paul probably stood up as this is coming out of his mouth, and he's just starting with, yeah, have the same attitude as Jesus. Have the same attitude as Jesus. What did Jesus do? Oh, snap. I know what Jesus has done. And I just feel like I got to interject with the gospel again. I got to tell you that Jesus, though he could have said, you know what? Who's the king of the universe? Me? Oh, right. I am not becoming one of them. But he didn't consider equality with God something to be grasped. But he let it go. He came and he did not look down on the idea of serving. Because he became a servant. He gave up his privileges so that we might have the privilege of knowing him. As the band comes and we close this morning... If our posture is missing one of these three things that we see clearly here in this gospel presentation, if we're missing the unity, if we're missing humility, if we're missing serving, if we're missing those three things, if we're missing one of those three things, we do not effectively reflect the Christ who came, lived, died, rose again, and purchased us back from death. Because here's, here's the underlying message, word, tone, whatever it is. The posture that you and I take proclaims the gospel we believe. The, the, the position that we take, the posture that we live in, that we breathe, that we move, proclaims the gospel that we believe. And I, am, I think I'm in a good place to say that in America, we could have missed the posture we're meant to take. We could be filling in the gaps. And in our filling in the gaps, we have allowed atrocities to happen. If humility and service and unity of the body of Christ happens, and the church takes that seriously, slavery never happens. To take the position of this, this picture of the gospel says there is no way as one who has been purchased by Jesus that I can look at one person as a brother and I can look at one person as property. There is no way these things happen if this image of Christ is taken seriously by the church. But you know what took the place of this vision? My way of life. Do you know what took the place of this vision? My way of life being interrupted. So yes, you have the church justifying slavery, but then you have believers who go, wait, this is not 
This is not for the kingdom. This is not how we treat each other. This is not how we look on people because we have been freed. We have been made new. My identity, the walls that I naturally have built up, has been stripped and crushed because of what Christ has done. So when I say the posture that we take proclaims the gospel we believe, could it be that for many, many years in this country, the gospel has not been proclaimed? And above all, it does not reflect Christ the way we were meant to reflect Him, and that should break the church's heart. And so this morning, we'll do what we do every Sunday, because it's a part of the biblical gathering. It is a time to confess. It is a time for prayer. It is a time to respond. I ask you the same questions that Paul asked. Is there any comfort from His love? Any fellowship? Have you experienced that good news? Then Paul says, make me truly happy, agreeing wholeheartedly, humbly serving each other, not arrogant, not proud, not boasting in your works, but truly Asking, do we have the same attitude as that of Christ Jesus or are we filling in gaps that we were never meant to fill in? Am I united with those sitting around me in this place, my jail group, the greater body of Christ, or am I doing my own thing? Do I approach others humbly or does pride in my own story matter most? Is serving others really a priority in my Or do I only see my interests? We can't guess what Jesus was like anymore. There's no time. There's no time. But may we have the same attitude that Christ Jesus had. May we see the privilege of belonging to him and the privilege, the privilege of suffering for him. This morning, our elders and jail leaders will be standing over there to pray for you, to receive you. If you're one who needs to just move and get out of your seat, we always have this place. There's the cross. There's a place for you to just get on your face before God and say, look, I need, I need you to fill in the gaps that I've tried to fill in my own. And if you're still going, who is this Jesus? I don't get it. I'm just not sure. I'll be standing right over there. I'd love to pray pray with you, pray for you, encourage you, challenge you, go get coffee later, whatever it is. But if Jesus is really who he says he is, and he's going to do what he says he's going to do, then it is a privilege to trust him, and it is a privilege to suffer for him. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for loving us. Jesus, you paid the price that we could not pay. You live the life that we cannot live on our own, but you give us what we need to live, move, and breathe as your bride. You put in us, A, the desire to do what pleases you, and B, the power to do what pleases you. So do it. It's in your name we pray.